Good morning. This week I've been uh, reading on the news some of the, the sad stories of, of, of A-level students who, because of the, the grading algorithm, were downgraded in their results and therefore had their, their university dreams dashed. Uh, and one of the headlines just read, and it was directed at the government's education secretary, you've ruined my life, you've ruined my life. And reading some of the stories are, are very sad, though of course the government have now made a, a U-turn and, and things will be reviewed again. But I was just thinking about how at such a young age life can just seem ruined, how events and circumstances happen that are unforeseen that can cause real sadness and upset. And it reminded me of a book I read recently just before lockdown, and yes, it's another book recommendation from me. Uh, it's part of a series by John Piper called The Swans Are Not Silent. But the second book in the series is called The Hidden Smile of God. And it comments upon the lives of John Bunyan, David Brainerd and William Cooper, three figures from church history who all suffered greatly in a, in a variety of ways, yet were used in amazing ways by God. Uh, and one of them, uh, William Cooper, who lived in the 1700s, he was a poet and a hymn writer and he, he suffered much through his, through his life. Here's a picture of William Cooper. He endured at least four awful periods of depression throughout his life intense periods of difficulty, what many would call the storms of life, which in some way relates a little to our passage today. But despite the serious difficulties and the trials of his life, William Cooper wrote these quite beautiful words in one of his poems, which eventually became a hymn. God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take, the clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. And I'll come back to those words a little later. But as we've read, the plant, he plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. We'll, we'll turn to our passage today. We've been continuing to work our way through, uh, through the Gospel of John. And this is John, the disciple of Jesus, his, his account of Jesus' life, death and resurrection. And we've made our way to chapter six. Now, Ryan mentioned last week that the best way for us to understand what John is trying to get us as the reader to decipher, the best way to understand it is to read the whole of John chapter six in its entirety. And so I, like Ryan, really encourage you if and when you get a moment to read the whole of chapter six. Because, you see, John is writing his gospel, he's writing a chronological account of Jesus' life. But within it, he's also weaved threads and subtle themes together, which will, in the end, give us the true and beautiful picture of who Jesus Christ is. And chapter 6 contains quite a few threads, which we're going to see over the next couple of weeks. But in John chapter 20, verse 30 to 31, John gives us the reason as to why he's writing. Jesus performed many other signs uh, in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in, his, in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Saviour, the Son of God, and that by believing you have life, you may have life in his name. Everything John records for us about Jesus is to get us to this conclusion with no doubts in our mind, to see this picture that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, 
and that only in him and by following him will you and I have true life. So as we look at our passage today in John chapter 6, we need to ask, what does this miraculous event that we're going to read about, what does this miraculous event reveal to us about the identity of Jesus Christ? Now, keep in mind too that as we've mentioned over the past couple of weeks, John records for us specific signs of Jesus. And these signs are significant displays of power that point beyond themselves to something deeper about who Jesus is. And this uh, event today that we're going to read about is often described as the fifth sign. So let's read it together. And for the sake of context, we'll start from verse 14. John chapter 6, verse 14 to 21. After the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, Surely this is the prophet who is coming to the world. And Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. And when evening came, his disciples went down to the lake, where they got into a boat and set off across the lake for Capernaum. But now it was dark, and Jesus had not yet joined them. A strong wind was blowing, and the waters grew rough. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I. Don't be afraid. Then they were willing to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat reached the shore where they were heading. Now, last week, Ryan took us through the the famous passage of Jesus uh, feeding a great multitude of people, some 5,000 plus. Uh, And next week and and the week after, Andy is going to take us through the rest of chapter 6, where Jesus explains uh, what he was doing in that miracle and what he was revealing about himself through that miracle. But before the explanation of that miracle with the loaves and the fish, we have this quite short passage today here covering a pretty amazing event, Jesus walking on the water. Now, it may seem a little odd to us that this astounding event is slotted in between Jesus' miraculous feeding of the 5,000 plus and its explanation. And so clearly before we and they, the disciples, get there, Jesus wanted to show his disciples something more about himself. And for such an amazing event, it's given very little detail here in John. The event is also recorded in Matthew chapter 14 and Mark chapter 6, where we receive a bit more detail. Now, In Matthews, in particular, we read even how the disciple Peter even walked on the water with Jesus. Now, though our passage doesn't mention this, that doesn't mean it didn't happen. It just means that John is placing a different emphasis on the event. Now, in John's count here, there's no dialogue or discourse. It also ends quite abruptly with, with no explanation given as to, as to what it means. The, the crowd don't see it, only the disciples see what happens. They arrive at the shore and that's it, job done. It finishes and is never mentioned again in the gospel. Why? Why? What is John trying to get us to see here? We often think of the miracles Jesus did as amazing feats. Wow, wasn't Jesus cool? He would have been really fun to hang out with. And actually often I think... If you've been a Christian a while, we read these miracles and go, yeah, whatever. Often after a couple of years, we read it and say, yeah, that's cool. But the people that do stuff on YouTube and TikTok, it's just as cool. Uh, I'm pretty sure, in fact, I'm definitely sure that no one on YouTube or on TikTok has ever walked on water. And before all you young people start picking up your phones to have a look, put them down. I promise you, you won't find anyone. It's impossible. It's miraculous. It's amazing, and within it, something is revealed to us about the person of Jesus Christ. 
Something else we have to keep in mind is that anything miraculous Jesus did was to show us something about himself. They, they are amazing feats in and of themselves, yes, of course. But all of them in some way reveal to us a little of who Jesus Christ is and what he came to do. So firstly, a bit of background for us. Note that it, it's still the same day as the miracle Jesus performed in the feeding of the 5,000 plus. We know that because in verse 16 we read it says, when evening came. We also read in verse 15 uh, that Jesus had withdrawn by, by, to a mountain by himself. And we learn from, from Matthew and Mark's account of this event that it was actually Jesus who had sent his disciples down to the boat while he had gone away by himself to pray. And then here in John we read this, this quite interesting phrase. By now it was dark and Jesus had not yet joined them. There seems to be a subtle point of symbolism being made here by John. We don't sometimes get it in the English, but it's there in the Greek translation. And John often makes this, uh, this subtle point throughout his gospel. The darkness of night coupled with the absence of Jesus. I wonder if you're a Christian listening today and there have been moments in your life where your walk with Jesus hasn't felt very close or very intimate. Where it feels like you're, you're in a boat alone. With, with Jesus left behind on the shore. It made me think of moments in my life where my walk with God has not been so intimate. My prayer life has sometimes become non-existent. The Bible sometimes unopened for days. Waking up and forgetting what my purposes and responsibilities are as a follower of Jesus. I wonder if you can relate to that. Times in life where it can seem like we've left Jesus on the shore as we venture out into our day. He becomes a distant memory as we, as we enter school or colleges or, or workplaces, forgetting that it's, it's actually him that we are to be representing in such places. Now, the Christian life is not one lived apart from the person we profess to believe in and follow. It is an intimate daily walk with our Saviour and our King, who we are to represent and speak of in our daily experiences. If that describes you today, May I encourage you to just to speak to someone. Speak to, speak to someone you trust about it. Ask for prayer about it in the chat function. Click the prayer icon. It may be a question of discipline with reading the Bible. Or courage uh, about having a spiritual conversation with someone in work. It may be that you, you need help and accountability in your prayer life or devotional times with God. I've had many times in my life where uh, I've had people be accountable to me in my, my quiet times, daily reading the word of God. It may be that you, you feel like you've wandered away from Jesus and, and can't turn back. You feel like you've wandered too far. Please, may I encourage you to speak to someone. Whatever it is Jesus desires, a deep personal walk with you. He wants you to walk with him, assured that his presence is in you and with you. So the disciples, they get in the boat and they're making their way to Capernaum. And here's a map for us to understand the, the geography here because storms on, on the Sea of Galilee or, or Lake Tiberias, as it's sometimes called, storms were quite common. So it's a quick geography lesson. You know how much I love geography. Now the, the lake lies in a cup-like basin. It's surrounded by hills and mountains on either side. And then in the afternoon, afternoon there'll be east and west valleys who 
that pull cool Mediterranean air from the west into the basin. And the desert air in the basin is quite hot, so when the cool air collides with, with the hot air, very strong winds are created, resulting in a storm. And these storms are normally located around the base of the eastern cliff, which is where the disciples were setting off from to head across to Capernaum in the northwest side of the lake. Okay, everyone wake up now, geography lesson is over. We can continue. So the disciples, they're by themselves on the lake. They are... Uh, encounter a strong wind and rough waters begin to arise. So they start to row. Uh, and I wonder what questions would have arisen in their minds. Why is this happening? Why isn't Jesus with us? Why me? Why us? Why now? When stormy events happen in our lives, hard times, do we have similar questions? It might be a hard or difficult, difficult conversation with someone or, or a disagreement. It might be a job problem a financial difficulty, housing issues, marriage or family problems, periods of, of grief and sorrow. What is our response? How often do we too have similar questions? Notice what the disciples do. They do all they can. They row. The, the sail would have been quite counterproductive at this point because of the wind, so they row some few miles. They do all they can. Sometimes in life, we have periods where we do all we can in our own strength. And those periods come to reveal to us that life lived in our own hands results in strife, in weariness, and ultimately is directionless. It reveals to us, perhaps like lockdown and the pandemic has too, that we are not in control. Sometimes our storms are calmed, and that's wonderful. Sometimes the storms rage on, often because it leads to greater intimacy in our relationship with God. So the disciples, they're rowing. In their distress, they see someone. Someone walking on the water. Verse 19 to 20 says, When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I, don't be afraid. It is I, don't be afraid. I think fear would have been a natural response to seeing a person walking on the water. I've never seen anyone uh, avoid using the Millennium uh, Bridge to just wander across the Tyne. I've never seen that happen. But look what happens here. The disciples are terrified as they see a figure coming towards them. They're more afraid now of this figure on the water rather than the storm that's going on around them. And they've not recognised that it's Jesus until he reassures them when he says, it is I, don't be afraid. As all of this is going on, though, notice that John doesn't say that the storm has died down. The waters are still rough. The wind is still strong. Jesus walks to them in the midst of the storm on the rough waves. He walks on the rough waves. Jesus doesn't calm the storm here at this point. The storm continues to rage around them. What does he do? He doesn't calm the storm. He calms his followers. It is I, don't be afraid. His concern is for his followers. The storm rages on, unstilled, but the hearts of his followers are stilled because they know and see that it's Jesus and he is with them. And notice too that in the midst of the, way, of the wind and the waves, it is the voice of Jesus that assures them that it is him. Jesus brings stillness to their hearts. 
Jesus' voice brings the stillness that their hearts desire. The storm is still raging on. It's the voice of Jesus that we need in the midst of the storm. Not concentrating on the wind or the waves or the oars or our own efforts in the rowing, but listening for the voice of God. When storms arise in our lives, maybe you feel like you're in a storm right now. I don't know your circumstances. Are you listening for the voice of God? Are you turning to his word to hear his voice? Or are you, are you looking at the wind and the waves and concentrating on, on the oars or on your own efforts? What, what's the disciples' response then in seeing Jesus and hearing Jesus' voice? Do they say, Jesus, please calm the storm? Do they say, Jesus, did you bring a towel? We're absolutely soaked. No. What is their response? Their response isn't that. Their response is not to do with the storm anymore. Their response is to do with Jesus' presence. Their response could be put simply like this. Jesus, please get into the boat with us. Jesus, please get into the boat with us. Verse 20 says, then they were willing to take him into the boat. Then they were willing to take him into the boat. Often the prayer request we have in life is, Jesus, calm the storm for me. Please calm this storm for me. We often pray that and, and in his grace, Jesus often does. But sometimes he doesn't. The issue here isn't about Jesus calming storms necessarily. The issue is whether Jesus is in the boat with you. The issue is whether Jesus is in the boat with you. The request, therefore, may be rather than Jesus calm the storm, but maybe Jesus assure me that you're in the boat with me in the midst of the storm. As long as you're in the boat, Jesus, I have all I need. As long as you're in the boat, I have all I need. Beth Moore, in her, in her book, Whispers of Hope, uh, she says this, we often want Jesus to calm the storms. When Jesus wants us to find him in the midst of it first. Jesus wants us to find him in the midst of it first. The storm here in John's account hasn't gone, though we know from Matthew and Mark's account that, that it does go, that Jesus does still the storm, but not until he's in the boat. Mark chapter six says, then he climbed into the boat with them and the wind died down. He climbed into the boat with them and the wind died down. They had to let him into the boat. That's the important point here. Not about the storms of life, but whether Jesus is in your boat in the midst of the storms of life. The Christian life will be full of moments of storms where, where the waters are rough. You feel like you're drowning, being, being thrown about across the sea, directionless and fearful and burdened and, and heavy laden, straining at the oars. And Jesus doesn't promise his followers a storm-free life, but he does promise a presence for life, specifically his presence. He promises to be with you in the midst of every storm. The question is, in your sorrow and in your difficulty, have you turned to Jesus? Have you listened for his voice? Have you asked him to assure you that he is with you in your boat? Have you turned to the one who walks on the rough waves to you? So what does this mean? As a result of this event, what's our conclusion? Who is Jesus Christ? 
Now Ryan mentioned last week that the background of the whole of chapter 6 itself is found in verse 4. The Jewish Passover festival was near. That's the whole background of chapter 6. Why is that linked with Jesus walking on the water? What does the Passover festival have to do with Jesus walking on the water? Well, the Passover festival was, was the time when the Jewish people remembered how God, how Yahweh, saved them from slavery in Egypt. And specifically the 10th the plague, the, the death of the firstborn, where the Jews were instructed to take a lamb and to kill it and to sprinkle its blood along the doorposts and the lintel of their houses. And you can read about that in Exodus chapter 12. And after leaving Egypt, they venture into the wilderness. And the people at the time were told to remember this event in the form of a festival, Passover, which they did every year. And Jews still celebrate it uh, today, still celebrate Passover today. But why is this important to the, to the background of our passage here in John chapter 4? What, what does the Passover festival have to do with Jesus walking on the water? Well, well I know Andy will, will explain this in much greater detail in the next couple of weeks as he takes us through the end of chapter 6 where Jesus explains the meaning behind his feeding of the 5,000 plus and how that relates to God feeding his people in the wilderness. But our passage today also relates to it subtly. You see, when, when the people of Israel left Egypt in what we call the Exodus, before they got to the wilderness, where did they come to? They arrived at the Red Sea. Now, many of us know the story, I'm sure, that to get across the Red Sea, God parted the waters of the Red Sea so his people could walk through on dry ground. And you can find that event in Exodus chapter 13 to 15. Now the people of Israel, they wrote a song about that event. And you can find that in Psalm 77. Let me read a couple of those verses to you from Psalm 77. The waters saw you, God. The waters saw you and writhed. The very depths were convulsed. Your path led through the sea, your way through the mighty waters, though your footprints were not seen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. Here Jesus is trying to get his, his Jewish disciples to understand that the same God who led Israel through the waters of the Red Sea, whose footprints were not seen, is the same God in human form in front of them, the word made flesh walking on the waters to them, whose footprints in the water they can now see. There's something else too as well for us to understand. As Jesus approaches the boat, what does he say? It is I, do not be afraid. The words Jesus uses, it is I, are translated uh, in the Greek as ego eimi. Now this was a phrase often used for self-identification, but it is possible that the Greek expression that John uses here may allude to the name of God, which he tells to Moses in Exodus chapter 3, the name I am. And we're going to see throughout the rest of this gospel how Jesus often uses that title for God, I am, to describe himself. Ego and me, I am. Do not be afraid. The word made flesh as we read in John chapter 1. There are many characters in the Bible that have parted bodies of water. Moses and Joshua and Elijah and Elisha. But only God treads upon them. Only God treads upon the waters. In the Old Testament book of Job, he describes for us the majesty and the awesomeness of God. And he says this in Job chapter 9 verse 8 and verse 10. He says, he alone stretches out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. He performs wonders that cannot be fathomed. Miracles that cannot be 
counted. Remind you of someone? In this miracle, Jesus is revealing himself to be none other than God incarnate, God the Son, God made flesh. And John at the start of his gospel had already proclaimed that, hadn't he, that Jesus is the word made flesh. Through him all things were made. It says in John 1, doesn't it, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And he was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life and that life was the light of all mankind. If Jesus made water and made the laws of nature, be assured he can manipulate them as he wills. Colossians chapter 1 has these beautiful words describing Jesus. It says, the Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Who is Jesus? Jesus Christ, the Son, the Word, God incarnate, made flesh. The one who's in control. The one who will walk on rough waves to get to you. The one who picked up a cross, carried it to a hill and died for you. The one who rose again for you. Have you let him into your life, into your, into your boat, if you like? Turn from a life without purpose, directionless, to the one who offers everlasting life. He won't force himself in. Will you let him in? Have you accepted who he is and what he has done for you? The son of God who loved you and gave himself for you. To let him in means accepting who he is and what he's done for you. And repenting and turning your life away from sin and, and you having control and seeking to let him have control and following him. Now life with Jesus, it won't be smooth sailing. There will be storms, there'll be rough waves and strong winds. James chapter 1 has tough words to say about trials and the storms of life. It says, consider it pure joy, my, my brothers and sisters. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. There will be times where your faith will be tested, where you will need to trust him and, and, and trust in his grace. The Christian life, it's all about grace. Grace means unmerited favour. We didn't merit Jesus coming to save us, but he came anyway. Grace has saved us and it's grace that will lead us home. His grace that will lead us home. Which is why in Hebrews chapter 4 verse 16 it says, Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us into our time of need. Let me finish on those words again that I read at the beginning from the pen of, of William Cooper. If you're struggling right now on the road with Jesus, in a storm, don't look at the circumstances or the waves or the wind. Take hold of Jesus. Look to him, listen for his voice. Jesus was out of the disciples' sight, but they were never out of his. Sometimes storms are stilled. Sometimes he wants to still our heart in the midst of the storm. Sometimes 
We can't trace his ways, but we can always trace his heart. The circumstances may be bitter, but his presence with us will forever be sweet. May these words be of encouragement to you from the pen of William Cooper as I finish. God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Let me pray for us now. Father, we thank you for your son. We are overwhelmed by your grace. And in his coming, we see your grace so beautifully expressed. There's nothing of us, Lord, that merited him to come. It was simply out of your love for us that he came, that he died, that he rose again to give us new life. Father, those of us maybe who are in storms right now, may we turn to the one who walks upon the waves. Turn to him. Invite him into, into our boat, into our lives. And knowing that with his presence, with us and in us, we have nothing to fear. And that, Lord, you will lead us to that shore. You will lead us to safety. We're thankful, Lord, for your word. We're thankful for your son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray.